Welcome to episode number six of Calm History. This is a spotlight episode featuring the story of Marco Polo, his travels, and the controversies. I'm Harris, and I created this time machine of tranquility to bring you the drama and the excitement of history, but in a calm tone so you can just chill and relax. If you want to listen to bonus episodes of Calm History and 400 other episodes I've created, then just use the link in the episode notes. Now, I trust that you know the two basic facts about Marco Polo. Number one, he traveled a lot and went to a lot of places. And number two, he invented a frantic, splashy pool game in which kids constantly yell his name. (laughs) Okay, he probably didn't invent that game. My theory is that some parents invented that game as an easy way to tell that their kids were safe in the pool while maybe they drank Mai Tais around the corner. As long as they could hear their kids yelling, then they figured, well, they must be okay. (laughs) That is a horrible theory for so many reasons, which is probably why I should stop conjecturing about the Marco Polo pool game and just focus on Marco Polo, the traveler, for the rest of this episode. When Marco Polo returned home from his travels, he published a book about all the marvelous sights he witnessed. But today, I'm going to do a little more than just tell you his story. In the first half of this episode, you'll hear the wondrous tale of his journey and his return home, including who he traveled with, how many miles he journeyed, where he went, and why he was imprisoned when he returned home. But in the second half, I'll address some bigger questions, like How much of his book is actually true? Did he really travel to the places he reported in the book? For example, he traveled all over China, but his book never mentioned the Great Wall of China, never mentioned chopsticks, didn't even mention tea. This might be like traveling all over the Sahara Desert and never mentioning sand. Well, maybe not exactly like that. But these omissions have been seen by many as red flags. His book has been reported to be a mix of truth, lies, exaggerations, and perhaps plagiarism. 
I'll finish this episode by sharing several assessments about the overall veracity and value of Marco Polo's book. Okay, time for some calm history. I hope it distracts and relaxes your overactive brain squirrels. The story of Marco Polo, Travels and Controversies. I'll begin with a brief overview. Marco Polo spent 24 years traveling through Asia along the Silk Road. His total journey covered about 15,000 miles, or 24,000 kilometers. When he returned home to Venice, his homeland was in the middle of a war. He joined the fight, but he was soon captured and imprisoned by the enemy. While in prison, he dictated his travels to a cellmate, and his tales were published in the book in 1300. This famous book gave Europeans their first comprehensive look into the East, especially in regard to the lands, the people, the customs, plants, and animals. I'll continue with a summary of the contents of this book, and then I'll follow it up by sharing some assessments about this book. This next section is a summary of Marco Polo's travels, based mostly on his book. Marco Polo was born in 1254 in Venice, Italy. His father was a wealthy merchant who often went on trading journeys to distant lands. This resulted in young Marco becoming a traveler at a young age. In 1271, when Marco was 17 years old, he accompanied his father and uncle on a long journey. They traveled through the Holy Land, Persia, and Tartary, and at length to the Empire of China, then called Cathay. It took them three years to reach Cathay. The Emperor of Cathay was a monarch named Kublai Khan, who lived in Peking. Marco's father and uncle had been in Cathay once before. They had entertained Kublai Khan by telling him about the manners and the customs of Europe. So when the two Venetian merchants again appeared in Peking, Kublai Khan was glad to see them. He was also pleased with the young Marco, whom he invited to his palace. Important positions at the Chinese court were given to Marco's father and uncle. This resulted in all three of them living in Cathay for several years 
During his stay, Marco studied the Chinese language and learned to speak it. When he was about 21, Kublai Khan sent Marco on an important business trip to a distant part of China. He did the work well, and from that time on was often employed by Kublai Khan as an envoy of the Chinese monarch. His travels were sometimes to lands never before visited by Europeans. He saw sights and people all throughout Asia that were mostly unknown to his home country. Step by step, he was promoted, including being governor of a great Chinese city. Finally, he, his father, and his uncle desired to return to Venice. They had all served Kublai Khan faithfully, and he had appreciated it and given them rich rewards. While they were discussing their departure, an embassy arrived in Peking from the king of Persia. This king desired to marry the daughter of Kublai Khan, the princess Kokachin. Consent was given, and Kublai Khan fitted out a fleet of 14 ships to carry the wedding party to Persia. The Princess Kokachin was a great friend of Marco Polo. She urged her father to allow Marco to go with the party, and so he did. Marco's father and uncle were also allowed to go, and the three Venetians left China. The fleet with the wedding party on board sailed southward on the China Sea. Stops were made at Borneo, Sumatra, Ceylon, and other places. Finally, the ship arrived in the Persian Gulf, and they all disembarked the ship. After they reached the capital of Persia, Marco, his father, and his uncle were entertained and showered with gifts from the Persians for several days. After the wedding, the Venetians left Persia, went to the Black Sea, and took a ship back home to Venice. They'd been away so long and were so much changed in appearance that none of their relations and old friends knew them when they arrived in Venice. After hearing their great stories and seeing the artifacts they brought back, it was quite clear who they were and where they had been. Unfortunately, at the time they returned home, Venice was at war with Genoa. These two cities were fighting for the trade of the world. Venice had established itself a leader in the trade world long ago. 800 years before Marco Polo's birth, some people of North Italy had fled from Attila the Hun to the islands of the Adriatic Sea and founded Venice. Since then, 
the little settlement had become the most wealthy and powerful city of Europe. Venice was the queen of the Adriatic Sea, and they protected themselves with great warships. But now, Genoa was challenging Venice for dominance. In a great naval battle, Genoa defeated the Venetians. Marco Polo was in that battle, and with many of his countrymen, he was captured by the enemy. For a year, he was confined in a Genoese prison with another prisoner, who happened to be a skilled writer. So Marco dictated a detailed account to him of his travels and experiences, which was soon published. The book spread throughout Europe in manuscript form and became known as The Travels of Marco Polo. This famous book gave Europeans their first comprehensive look into China, Persia, India, Japan, and other Asian cities and countries. It was the first Western record of porcelain, coal, gunpowder, paper money, and some Asian plants and exotic animals. The book was translated into many languages so that people in all parts of Europe learned about Marco's adventures. This included Christopher Columbus, which may have contributed to Columbus mistaking the new lands in the West for the old lands in the East. When Columbus reached the Caribbean lands of Haiti and Cuba, he thought they seemed a lot like the descriptions of Java, Sumatra, and other East India islands that Marco Polo had described in his book. So Columbus thought he had landed in India. This wasn't Marco Polo's fault, of course, but now you may understand better why Columbus called the local Caribbean people Indians. He had just consulted Marco Polo's book and thought he had landed in the East India Islands. Columbus may not have been the only person misled by Polo's book. The contents of his book have since come under scrutiny and may be a mix of fact and fiction. This last section will now look at the authenticity and veracity of Marco Polo's book. Since its publication, some have viewed Marco Polo's book with skepticism. Some in the Middle Ages regarded the book simply as a romance or a fable. This was due largely to the sharp difference of his descriptions of China compared to earlier accounts.
doubts have also been raised in later centuries about Marco Polo's narrative of his travels in China. There were many well-known structures and practices in China that he failed to mention. There were also difficulties in identifying many of the place names he used, although the great majority have since been identified. Basically, many have questioned if he had visited the places he mentioned in his book. Perhaps he had inserted the accounts of his father and his uncle or other travelers. Some even doubted if he did reach China, or that, if he did, perhaps he never went beyond the area we call Beijing today. It has, however, been pointed out that Polo's accounts of China are more accurate and detailed than other travelers' accounts of those periods. Polo had at times refuted the marvelous fables and legends given in other European accounts. For example, older accounts described China as barbaric, whereas he described China as a sophisticated civilization. Despite some exaggerations and some errors, Polo's accounts have relatively few of the descriptions of irrational marvels. In many cases, he made a clear distinction between what he had heard rather than what he had seen, clarifying to the reader the difference between potential lore told to him by others and his own experiences. It is also largely free of the gross errors found in other accounts. For example, the Moroccan traveler Batuta had confused the Yellow River with the Grand Canal and other waterways. Batuta had also believed that porcelain was made from coal. Modern studies have further shown that details given in Marco Polo's book, such as the currencies used, salt productions, and revenues, are accurate and unique. Such detailed descriptions like these are not found in other non-Chinese sources. Their accuracy is supported by archaeological evidence as well as Chinese records compiled after Polo had left China. His accounts are therefore unlikely to have been obtained secondhand. Other accounts have also been verified. For example, when visiting a specific area in China, Marco Polo noted that a large number of Christian churches had been built there. His claim is confirmed by a Chinese text 
of the 14th century, which also describes similar churches in this same area. His story about a particular princess sent from China to Persia to marry the Il Khan is also confirmed by independent sources in both Persia and China. What about the accusation of omissions? Skeptics have long wondered if Marco Polo wrote his book based on hearsay. Some pointed to missing information about noteworthy practices and structures of China, as well as the lack of details on some places in his book. While Polo describes paper money and the burning of coal quite well, he failed to mention the Great Wall of China, tea, Chinese characters, chopsticks, or foot binding. His failure to note the presence of the Great Wall of China was first raised in the middle of the 17th century. By the middle of the 18th century, it was suggested that he might have never reached China. However, the Mongols were not fond of the Great Wall that for centuries had stood against them. Thus, it had fallen into obscurity during that time period. A later scholar argued that Marco Polo might not have visited southern China. This was due to the lack of details in his description of southern Chinese cities compared to northern ones. Another scholar raised the possibility that Marco Polo might not have been to China at all. This scholar wondered if Marco Polo might have based his accounts on Persian sources due to his use of Persian expressions. This is taken further by Dr. Frances Wood, who claimed in her 1995 book, Did Marco Polo Go to China?, that at best, Polo never went farther east than Persia, meaning modern Iran. She explained that there is nothing about China in Polo's book that could not be obtained by reading Persian books. She maintains that it is more probable that Polo only went to Constantinople, which is modern Istanbul and Turkey, and to some of the Italian merchant colonies around the Black Sea. While in those locations, he may have simply listened to stories from travelers who had been farther east. Supporters of the book's basic accuracy cited other reasons why the book omitted things like footbinding and the Great Wall of China. They note that the Great Wall, familiar to us today, is a Ming structure built some two centuries 
after Marco Polo's travels. They also explain that the Mongol rulers whom Polo served controlled territories both north and south of today's wall, so they wouldn't have a reason to maintain any fortifications that may have remained there from the earlier dynasties. Other Europeans who traveled to similar regions also said nothing about the wall. One well-known traveler who asked about the wall when he visited China during a similar period could not find anyone who had either seen it or knew of anyone who had seen it. This suggested that while ruins of the wall constructed in the earlier periods might have existed, they were not significant or noteworthy at that time. It has also been argued that foot-binding was not common even among Chinese during Polo's time and almost unknown among the Mongols. There was an Italian missionary who visited a similar region in China about the same time who did mention foot-binding. It is, however, unclear whether he was merely relaying something he had heard because his actual description is inaccurate. No other foreign visitors to this area mention the practice. This seems to support that foot-binding was not widespread or was not practiced in extreme form at that time. As a related reference, Marco Polo did note the dainty walk of Chinese women who took very short steps. It has also been noted by other scholars that many of the things not mentioned by Marco Polo, such as tea and chopsticks, were not mentioned by other travelers as well. Some scholars agree that Marco Polo's account is more extensive, more accurate, and more detailed than those of other foreign travelers to China in this period. Marco Polo even observed Chinese nautical inventions, such as the watertight compartments of bulkhead partitions in Chinese ships. He was even keen to share this helpful information with many others in Venice. What about the accusations of exaggerations? Many scholars believe that Marco Polo exaggerated his importance in China. One British historian thought that Polo had likely exaggerated and lied about his status in China. Another believed that such exaggerations were embellishments by his ghostwriter. In his book, Polo claimed that he was a close friend and advisor to Kublai Khan and that he was governor of the city of Yangzhou for three years. Yet, no Chinese source mentions him 
as either a friend of the emperor or as the governor of Yangzhou. Remarkably, no Chinese source mentions Marco Polo at all. The word polo can be found in older texts from China, but this word has been argued to either be a word meaning the metal steel or the names of people of Mongol or Turkish extraction. One particular scholar believed that Polo might have served as an officer of the government salt monopoly in Yangzhou. This would have been a position of some significance that could explain the exaggeration. Polo also claimed to have provided the Mongols with technical advice on building a trebuchet used during a specific siege. This claim cannot possibly be true as that specific siege was over before Polo had arrived in China. The Mongol army involved in that siege did have foreign military engineers, but they were mentioned in Chinese sources as being from Baghdad and had Arabic names. Another particular scholar has challenged that Polo exaggerated his own importance. He explained, contrary to what has often been said, Marco Polo does not claim any very exalted position for himself. He points out that Marco never claimed to be a minister of high rank, only that he was an emissary for the Khan and held a position of some honor. He sees this as a reasonable claim. He further explains how the earliest manuscripts of Polo's accounts provide contradicting information about his role in Yangzhou. Some portions state he was just a simple resident, while other portions state he was a governor. Another manuscript claims Marco Polo was simply holding that office as a temporary substitute for someone else. Overall, though, all the manuscripts concur that he worked as an esteemed emissary for the Khan. This scholar also addresses why Marco Polo's name may have never appeared in older Chinese texts. It is possible that the name Polo, as a reference to Marco Polo, didn't appear because there may have been little regard for using surnames. It is also possible that the name Marco may not have appeared in Chinese transcription because Marco Polo took on a Chinese or Mongol name, and this new name may not have had any bearing or similarity to his Latin name. What about the clear errors in the book? A number of clear errors in Marco Polo's account have been noted. For example, 
he described the bridge, later known as Marco Polo Bridge, as having 24 arches instead of 11 or 13. He also said that one particular city wall had 12 gates when it only had 11. Archaeologists have also pointed out that Polo may have mixed up the details from the two attempted invasions of Japan by Kublai Khan in 1274 and 1281. Polo wrote of five masted ships when archaeological excavations found the ships, in fact, had only three masts. What about accusations of appropriation or plagiarism? One scholar accused Marco Polo of taking other people's accounts in his book. He accused Marco Polo of retelling other stories as his own, or he based his accounts on Persian guidebooks or other lost sources. For example, Polo's account of the voyage of the princess Kokachin from China to Persia to marry the Il Khan in 1293 was also mentioned in later Chinese works. However, none of these accounts mentions Marco Polo, or indeed any European, as part of the bridal party. This has been cited as an example of Polo's retelling of a well-known tale. In Polo's defense, it's been noted that even the princess herself was not mentioned in the Chinese source. It actually would have been surprising if Marco Polo had been mentioned. One historian argued that Marco Polo's account, in fact, allows the Persian and Chinese sources to be reconciled by relaying the information that two of the three envoys sent had died during the voyage. It explains why only the third who survived was mentioned. Polo had therefore completed the story by providing information not found in either source. The historian also noted that the only Persian source that mentions the princess was not completed until 1310. This indicates that Marco Polo could not have learned the information from any Persian book. The agreement of Polo's detailed account of the princess with other independent sources may be proof of the veracity of Polo's story and his presence in China. And I'll conclude this episode with some overall assessments. One scholar explains that much of what is in Polo's book about China is mostly correct. Therefore, to claim that Polo did not go to China 
creates far more problems than it solves. Also, the balance of probabilities strongly suggests that Polo really did go to China, even if he exaggerated somewhat his importance in China. Some have dismissed the various criticisms that started in the 17th century of Polo's accounts. They highlight Polo's accuracy in a great part of his accounts. For example, on the lay of the land, such as the Grand Canal of China. If Marco was a liar, one wrote, then he must have been a very meticulous one. In 2012, a historian released a detailed analysis of Polo's description of currencies, salt production, and revenues. The historian argued that the evidence supports his presence in China because he included details which he could not have otherwise known. It has also been noted that no other Western, Arab, or Persian sources have given such accurate and unique details about the currencies of China. For example, the shape and size of the paper, the use of seals, the various denominations of paper money, as well as variations in currency usage in different regions of China. These details included the use of cowrie shells in Yunnan, which has been supported by archaeological evidence and Chinese sources compiled long after Polo left China. Polo's accounts of salt production and revenues from the salt monopoly are also accurate in accord with Chinese documents of the Yuan era. An economic historian concludes that the historian demonstrates by specific example after specific example the ultimately overwhelming probability of the broad authenticity of Polo's account. Many problems of Polo's text may have another cause. A verbatim copy was not always disseminated. Instead, there was also the oral transmission of the original text and the proliferation of significantly different hand-copied manuscripts. I'll finish this episode with the conclusion from one scholar. Quote, Those who doubted, although mistaken, were not always being casual or foolish. The case as a whole had now been closed. The book is, in essence, authentic and when used with care in broad terms, to be trusted as a serious, though obviously not always final, witness. End quote. This is the end of this historical spotlight.
I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Calm History. If you want to listen to bonus episodes of Calm History and 400 other episodes I've created, just use the link in the episode notes. Take care.